Hello, friends, and welcome back to the While We're Waiting Hope After Child Loss podcast. I'm Jill Sullivan, your host and one of the co-founders of the While We're Waiting ministry. This is a podcast of stories, stories of devastating loss and grief and heartbreak and struggle, and stories of hope and healing and faith, and yes, even joy. Underlying every conversation is the hope we have in Jesus Christ, which makes it possible to not just survive the loss of a child, but to live well while we're waiting to see them again in heaven one day. You can learn more about our ministry and the free bereaved parent retreats we host by visiting our website at www.whilewe'rewaiting.org. Welcome to episode number 156. As you listen to this episode today, we are getting on an airplane heading home from our while we're waiting weekend for bereaved parents in Botswana, Africa. So instead of my typical interview format, I'm going to be presenting panel discussions from the Discerning Biblical Truth for Bereaved Parents Conference hosted by the Our Hearts Are Home Ministry over the next two episodes. The panel members include my husband Brad and I, Don and Patsy Aiken, blogger Melanie DeSimone, and Gary and Laura House, who founded the Our Hearts, Our Home ministry. The topic of today's panel discussion is 10 Truths About Child Loss, and I believe you'll find some very practical and helpful information here, and maybe help you realize that what you're experiencing is normal. A video of this discussion is available on YouTube, and I'll share the link to it in the show notes. For now, just lean in and listen, and be sure to come back next week to hear another great panel discussion. I'd like to welcome everyone to our first session tonight. This evening, we will be discussing truths about child loss, finding hope in the midst of grief. We're going to be focusing on questions, emotions, and experiences that I think most of us here struggle with on a regular basis in our grief journey and how to find hope in the midst of all of it. Now, none of us up front here are uh, counselors. We are not professional therapists. We're all just parents who have lost children and uh, on the same journey of grief. We expect this weekend to learn from each other during our time together. And uh, we'd like to start the evening by introducing ourselves. Uh, I'll begin, I'm Gary House, and this is my wife, Laura. And we're the founders of Our Hearts Are Home. It's a ministry that we started after our son, Nathan, died about seven years ago. And our focus is to help parents who have lost children. There's a picture that you may see here of Nathan, and he was an electrical engineer, a wonderful person. We miss him terribly. He was one of the most kind and loving individuals that you'd ever know. He is very close to Laura and I and very close to his uh, brother and sister as well. He silently battled probably 10 years of depression for just something that uh, he could not get over and finally uh, died by suicide in 2016. We're Brad and Jill Sullivan uh, from Hot Springs, Arkansas. And our daughter, Hannah, was just a very active teenager, was very, uh, loved school, loved, Loved the Lord, was just involved in a lot of different things. And in the um, in the spring of her sophomore year of high school, began having some headaches and just some unexplained symptoms. And uh, it turned out that it was brain cancer. And it was a very aggressive and deadly form of brain cancer called glioblastoma. And she lived for one year from the time of diagnosis and went to heaven in February of 2009. So we just passed 
14 years since she went to heaven. We have another daughter who is now 27 years old and um, she's doing well, mm -hmm. but we miss our Hannah every day. Yes. And just, um, we found out real quick that we got a lot of comfort from being around people that understood us. And uh, Jill and another couple, we got together after their son Adam had gone to heaven and we started a ministry called While We're Waiting. And we host retreats for bereaved parents. And uh, we do that in Hot Springs, but we're doing them around the country now. So anyway, it's been a blessing to us to be around people like you uh, that understand us and we understand you. Our stories are not the same, but we get each other, no matter what the circumstance. So again, we're, we're grateful to be here and just to share a little bit of our story and to get to know your story as well. Well, we're Patsy and Don Aiken. Uh, we live in Tulsa. Uh, we moved here uh, from Texas when our kids were four, nine, and 10, and basically raised them here in Tulsa. And um, in 1996, our youngest son, Eric, was 21 years old and uh, just a peach of a kid. You know, he was out on his own, living in his own apartment, doing, doing well with um, his uh entrepreneurship in computers. He did computer graphics and uh, went to school to, to learn how to do that. And he loved adventure. He loved to go on road trips. And one beautiful September weekend, he went on his, a road trip and didn't let us know where he, that he was even going. We were on a road trip ourselves and he had his own apartment. So he um, left and when we got back, we got in touch with the boys or tried to and Eric was nowhere to be found and it took us five months to locate him. He had gone to Mexico and uh, after years of research we found that he had been murdered three days after he'd left home. But we did get resolved there and justice was done to the ones who, who murdered him. Eight years later, our middle son, Todd, who was born with Down syndrome, and also had a heart condition, uh, died of his, uh, of his syndrome and of his heart condition. Uh, when he was an infant, the doctors told us that he would, his heart would last between six and eight years. Well, he lived to be 33, so he mm -hmm. defied all odds on that. Well, that was another shock, you know, but uh, we weren't ready for him to go either, you know, as a, as a surprise, because he was doing well and it, he was not ill. It, he just... His heart gave out, actually. And then, again, our son, our 43-year-old son, Mark, our oldest son, was out on his motorcycle, and um, someone pulled out directly in front of him, made a left-hand turn within like a half a block of him. He laid the bike down. His bike missed the back end of the truck, but he hit it head-on and uh, died at the scene. And so that has, was in 2013. So it's been 10 years now since our last child has gone to heaven and we have received um, great support through just everybody here, you know, and just talking about it. And, and it's been quite a journey. It's still a journey that uh, we find hope in the Lord and uh, in our salvation. Um, I would just add that um, for us, uh, grief share has been a very important uh, part of our healing. 
and uh, we've also got to participate in a retreat while we're waiting as well. Uh, Gary and Laura actually went through our Grief Share program, uh, and I like to say it took them, uh, it's not that they were slow learners, but that they, they were traveling a great deal back and forth between Virginia and Tulsa, and so it took about three times to, to get through it, but uh, uh, you know, they, they got a lot out of it as well, so I'm grateful for that and that we got to know them and got to be really good friends with them. I'm Melanie DeSimone, and my son, Dominic, went to heaven in a motorcycle accident in 2014. And I began a blog about, it was close to 18 months after he left for heaven, um, in part because I felt compelled to share what I was going through, and also in part because I felt like I wanted to help other people through their journey, but also from a perspective of being very honest about the fact that while I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and absolutely believe my son is in heaven, that doesn't erase the pain. It doesn't change the missing, and it doesn't make everything okay. And um, I felt like that was a voice that in some ways was missing from the conversation for believing parents in particular. I just kept reading stories that just had this kind of quickly resolved arc. And I, and I know now, because it was in 2014 that we lost Dominic, that people, for the sake of brevity or for the sake of making it a neat story, neat in the sense of tidy, shortened what happened, that it took years and years for most of them, if not all of them, to get to a place of joy again. But I needed to know right then that I didn't have to necessarily feel joyful and that I didn't necessarily have to pretend that everything was okay. And so I began sharing. And um, through the blog, I met other people. I found out about while we're waiting. Um, I've met uh, a lot of other bereaved parents. I live in a rural area, so there's no local support for bereaved parents. So it's it's been a journey to continue to share. I continue to write. I say one day I'll probably run out of things to say, but so far at nine years I haven't because there's a there's something new every time. Today is the uh, ninth anniversary of the day that we buried Dominic, and so even today, you know, it's still a grief anniversary. You know, and you still think about it, and you still feel it, and it doesn't really. It. I was telling somebody earlier that it's. It's the same intensity, the feeling that I got when they, when the police officer came to the door, it's that same feeling, the same intensity, but it's very brief now. And so it, it continues to be a journey. Thank you. Well, let's take a look now at these 10 truths about child loss. I know there are many more <laughs> difficult to choose these 10. But the first one that we would like to discuss is the grief of losing a child may be the deepest pain that we will ever experience. And with this level of indescribable pain, it's important to know that the grief that we do experience is most likely normal. Oftentimes we feel like we're the abnormal one on the journey, but uh, you're probably 
very normal. We all wake up in the morning for a long time after the loss of our child. And uh, we think maybe it was a bad dream. And then all of a sudden reality sets in, doesn't it? We realize, no, this really did happen. We develop brain fog and we can't remember details that we've always known. Uh, our own address, maybe a good friend's name, it's just gone. We're ambushed out of nowhere with a memory of our child. And we find ourselves broken down and weeping uncontrollably without warning. Uh, we're often experiencing difficult sleep uh, at night and just can't go to sleep or wake up and can't go back to sleep. We find it impossible to go to events that we'd always gone to and be around people that we always felt comfortable with. We may even question the character of God or feel that he all of a sudden is far away. And these emotions and experiences and many, many more that we can mention are all very normal. Almost everybody goes through these same emotions. We need to embrace them. The temptation is to run from them, but we should uh, lean into them or embrace them and recognize that they are all part of this grief process. And it's very important that we face these emotions and experiences because uh, we have to in order to have a healthy grieving process. Otherwise, a few years down the road, uh, it'll catch up with us and we'll find out that uh, we're not where we should be in our growth. Well, grief hurts really bad. And um, it seems, however, that through suffering, uh, the deeper the pain, the greater the growth. And I think all of us here tonight, uh, just by the fact that we're all here, we want to grow. We want this experience of pain and suffering to be one that uh, builds character in our lives, as well as uh, primarily drawing us closer to him and uh, finding an intimacy that we would not have otherwise had. When we face this level of pain and suffering, uh, we have a choice to make, and that is to become bitter and reject God because of what he did uh, to us. One of the most common questions is, how can a loving God allow something like this to happen? How can God take our child from us? Our other option is to just let him have his way in us and do something in us that, again, otherwise would not have been able to happen. And the reading of scripture and my own personal experience tells me that turning to God will help us even when we wonder if he is really there. We need to learn to trust him uh, with all of our pain, all of our unanswered questions, and um, let him do in us what he desires to do in each of us. In the midst of our grief process, we need to let God just take us where he originally wanted us to be. And I really believe that uh, the level of pain that we experience allows this to happen. I know that for Laura and I, we've grown so much in our walk with the Lord, and we always strive to do that. We always wanted to focus on, on God and Jesus Christ. And yet there's some something that we experience that I don't think would have happened in this walk with the Lord uh, had we not suffered uh, with this intensity. And the Bible talks about that a lot, and we'll probably touch on that later. But the length of this process of grief is uh, different for everyone. 
And it does take time and we have to take whatever time that it takes for us individually. Uh, there are no shortcuts in this process. The only thing I really want to add to that when we're talking about um, point number one here is just to encourage you that, you know, we're seven years down the road now and some of you are further than that. A lot of you are just very early on. Um, but early on, we're all mourning, you know, the word mourning, where we all know what that feels like. And that's what Gary was describing. All of you know exactly, and all of you online know exactly what we're talking about. But um, further down the road, there are still times of grief. I mean, I miss Nathan more now than I even did seven years ago. I didn't expect that. I think that's one of the most surprising things to me. But it kind of makes sense because every day is longer since I've seen him, you know, and hugged him and heard him laugh. So um, I miss him more, but I'm not mourning anymore. There are times of grief. But when I think about Nathan now, I don't think about how he died. I mean, obviously, it was horrible the way Nathan died and it's horrible the way any of our kids have died. But now when I think of Nathan, I, we laugh, we look at pictures, we can look at video. And, you know, when we're together as a family, it's constant. Oh, can you remember the time that Nathan did that? We do that constantly with our other two children. And it's genuine joy. There's still moments of grief and that will happen until we are reunited. I am looking forward to that. <laughs> Everybody else is in this room too, I'm sure, and online. Um, but I just wanted to encourage you that if you are in that mourning time right now, um, there will be a day where you think more about how your child lived than how they died. And that is a, it's different for everyone. There's no uh, timetable and um H. Norman Wright is someone that I think all of us really appreciate. He's done a lot of writing on grief and on loss. And he talks about taking up to 10 years to, quote, stabilize from the death of a child. So this is not something, even though someone you know may think you should be further along the road than you are, they don't know what they're saying. <laughs> so give yourself permission to grieve and uh, stick with that process and it will be worth it. A second truth is that there is not just one way for someone to grieve. We all have our own grief journey and uh, there's no right or wrong way to grieve. Uh, some people based probably upon personality uh, like to talk all the time and that's how they process their grief. Unfortunately, uh, if the other, the spouse perhaps uh, is more uh, closed with their emotions, that can create some tensions, but uh, uh, because some people deal with their grief by just not talking at all, they become kind of reclusive. And so we have to um, to recognize how we best process our grief. And if talking about it is the way you do, uh, find someone that's a great listener. Some people gush with emotions and just weep and weep and weep. And other pe people don't show any emotion at all. And uh, don't be afraid to uh, shed tears. Uh, someone once told me that uh, tears are liquid prayers. And so uh, God even weeps with us, we're told in scripture. And so there's nothing to be embarrassed or ashamed about to cry, even when you're around other people or in public. That's, that's healthy to do if that's uh, what you need to do. You're not doing it wrong. Um, if you don't grieve the same way that other people do. So be comfortable with your own grief. Um, in your notebook, 
and if you're online, you have this email, and so maybe you've downloaded it, or if you're watching it later, on page nine at the bottom, we give some suggested resources. So as you are on this journey and going through grief, grief share, we've already mentioned, and we'll probably talk about that several times. I'm just curious in the room, has anybody been to a grief share yet? Okay, a handful of people. Wow. Has anyone been to one just for child loss? Um, because that does exist, and please email us and we'll connect you to that if you'd like to go to an online one just for child loss. But Grief Share, there's not enough words to say how great that is. And especially if you do have an opportunity to go to one with just bereaved parents, there's another whole level of community there um, that ends up being close to you even after the fact. Journey Through Grief, I don't know if anyone's familiar with those or little booklets. Yeah, okay. Some of you are through Stephen Ministries. And these are amazing. If you go to their website, it's just $10 for four books. And you can send them to someone every three months or read them yourself if you're brand new here. And every three months you read the next consecutive book. And it's really right where we are, which is amazing. So that's a good resource. Support groups, um, while we're waiting, have support groups all over the country. Um, and an online one once a month. Mm -hmm. And we also have online support groups through Our Hearts Are Home. While we're waiting weekends, and we'll talk more about that. And in your notebook, there's a whole page about our ministries and everything mm -hmm. that we do. So hopefully you guys can plug in. And then we also offer gatherings online and around the country and multiple book studies each year. <laughs> so just six weeks online, but a lot of fun to be together with other parents. Jill has a wonderful podcast, the While We're Waiting podcast. It's phenomenal. So I encourage you to check that out. And then there's, of course, a lot of books and a lot of blogs. Melanie's blogs, the one that we would highly recommend, the lifeidentchoose.com. So in the back of your notebook, there is a page that has all the links and um, ways to get to these. Number three. Don, why did my child die? You know, um, Patsy and I had gone to worship service, early worship service, and after worship service, we decided that morning, you know, we'd really like to go to um, the cemetery and visit our two sons who were already uh, buried there and uh, just have a few minutes of quiet time. And on the way over there, we received a phone call I did on my cell phone, and I answered it. I pulled over and answered it, and it was our oldest son's best friend, and he said, are you aware uh, that Mark was in a motorcycle accident last night? And I said, no, I did not know that. And he said, well, Don, he didn't make it. And it hit me. I mean, it was like, and, and you know, I turned the car around to drive home. And I remember screaming, all three? All three, God? Why? And, you know, it's a lament. That's what I've learned. It's a lament. It's important to lament because lament really is a statement of faith. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but Psalms 22, 1 and 2. David says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Well, all of us in this room uh, have had those times and um, lament. And, you know, there is, um, for most of us, no satisfactory answer to this question as to why. 
There just is not. And we can get into all kinds of theology. And maybe as we get into the question and answer period, we will talk about this uh, in, in that setting a little bit too. But, you know, what has helped me is Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. In, in our journey, in my journey, um, what I have had to rely on is God is sovereign. God ultimately wins this battle over death. He wins this battle over sin and heartache and hard feelings and all of that. And, you know, I'm so glad that I read the end of the book and I know the end of the story. And so I'd like to quote Revelation 21, 4 and 5. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. For me, uh, this question uh, of why, it's about understanding for me the character of God and what he did through Jesus Christ on the cross. And just the other night I learned, you know, the first coming of the Messiah was about atonement. The second coming of the Messiah will be about justice. And uh, I am so grateful to understand that today. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And he is the radiance of his glory. You know, what I have learned is I don't have all the answers. I don't have any of the answers. But this I do know. God is good. And I trust him. Psalms uh, 22, you know, after David cried out in Psalms 22, 1 and 2 that I read to you a few minutes ago, in 3 and 4, he has this to add on. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them, and he will deliver us. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. For me, uh, the scripture has offered so much comfort through these times. Uh, I tried alcohol, and let me tell you guys, it's not a good solution. And uh, today I'm glad to report that, you know, I've, I've got to turn that over to him and be sober for 17 years. And today I am so glad that I take comfort in God. I take comfort in his word and try to read it every single day. And particularly Psalm 77, which I won't quote here, but this is quite long. But that's what I have to say about why. The fourth truth in your book is that relationships change when a person loses a child. How many of you have experienced that? That your relationships have changed since the loss of your child? You know, I think that happens because when our child goes to heaven, we change. 
we become completely different people. I am not the same person that I was before Hannah went to heaven. And I think our friends and our family have a certain level of tolerance for a while. They know we're going to be sad. They know we're going to cry. They know we're going to be broken. But after a while, they want us to go back to the person that we were before. But we're not ever going to be that person again. And so that has a huge impact on our relationships. Um, some people just can't really deal with the new us. <laughs> but that's who we are now. A lot of times, and this is a very common thing too, I think, the people that we expect or that we expected to be there for us, oftentimes are not the people who are there. Sometimes it's strangers. It's other parents that have lost children that will come to the visitation or that will send you a card afterwards and say, you know, I don't really know you, but I've been where you are. And they'll reach out to us. And then we form friendships with those people that, that are closer, that are deeper and stronger than the friendships that we had before. So our relationships change, sometimes for the better. Sometimes relationships can be impacted by the hurtful things that people say to us. I know you guys have all experienced that. People most often are trying to be helpful most of the time, but sometimes the things that they say are not helpful at all and can actually be hurtful and add to our pain. And then we just kind of want to, you know, we don't want to be around those people anymore especially when it happens again and again. The people that tell us that it's time to move on or the people who say sentences that begin with the words at least, fill in the rest of the sentence. Any sentence that begins with the word at least is going to be a hurtful sentence. And so that can also impact our relationships. Our friendships are not the same after that. Um, and one thing that we've learned, and again, we've been on this journey for 14 years, We've kind of learned to lower our expectations of other people. You know, I was one of those that was very easily hurt by things people said. And I would lay in bed at night and just replay those over and over in my head and think about how I could have, I should have answered those people. Um, but you know what? The people who do say things to us, even if they're clumsy and, and maybe not the right thing to say, at least they're trying. Mm -hmm. They're the brave people that are at least attempting to be helpful to us. So we need to lower our expectations. I didn't know what to say to someone who had lost a child. I, I, and, you know, there's still, even though we deal with bereaved parents all the time, there are situations I don't have any idea what to say because there's not anything we can say, right, that can fix it. So just lower your expectations of the people around you. People can never be perfect comforters. They can try. They can do their best to try to help us and things like that. But there is only one perfect comforter, right? And that's the Holy Spirit. That's where we need to look to for our comfort is, is the Lord. So our relationships do change after the loss of a child, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'd just like to add that, you know, something that, that we found out real quick after Hannah went to heaven as far as our relationships as I said earlier, we wanted to be around people that understood us. So we sought those relationships out. And we spent time with people before we even started the ministry. We were already seeking those people out to, to spend time with because they under, understood us. So what I would say is, is to be intentional about seeking those relationships. 
the people that can support you, that understand you, that get you, they understand suffering and loss, but, but seek those out. That has been the most, uh, the thing that, that has, has benefited us the most is we've met people like we're meeting tonight that get us. And the connection we have is special. And it's, it's God ordained. We believe that. It's not a coincidence. And, and the people that God puts in your life, seek those people out and, and grow those relationships, the people that you connect with. And uh, that, that has been such a blessing to us is getting to meet folks like you and being around people that get us. And uh, y'all have become our, our, our best friends. And we can truly say that. And, you know, the people that we call our best friends before, they're still acquaintances, they're still friends, but the people that we want to sit down and have a meal with or, or spend time with is someone that is people that get us. And, and, and I truly, you know, God wants us to be a family. We, he wants us to be brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's, for, that's a reason for that is that that's, that's what he's created us, the relationships that, that he uses to support each other. And, and that's where I feel that support for my uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and again, that's focusing on the right things. You've got to be around people that are, yeah. know the truth, are, are grounded in God's word, and, and that can support you as you go forward. So um, just to encourage you there and, and uh, give yourself time and give others grace. And it's another it's another opportunity to trust God and and with with your relationships and the people that you uh, you know now and people that you're going to God's going to bring into your life and and that, that's the blessing we talk about is the people God's brought into our lives and be sensitive to that. So. Number five is bereaved parents can often find it difficult to go back to church. And um, before I forget, I want to make sure I segue with what Brad just said, which is that we are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But that assembling, especially in the early days of grief, may look a little different than going every Sunday and sitting in a pew. And God can bring people into your life to provide fellowship. Um, study of the word, encouragement. And it, and so that is a one way that I think that the Lord has provided. He certainly provided for our family in that way. And I think that that's one way to remember he can provide for you if you are finding it difficult to go back to church. One of the reasons, there's a lot of reasons that parent, bereaved parents find it difficult to go back to church. One is the physical space can be painful. If you have a traditional funeral or a memorial service and it was held in your home church, it could just be very hard to sit there and to visualize whatever kind of setup you had, whether it was a, a coffin or, or pictures or whatever. And I mean, that's really hard. And we all know we were talking about um, grief waves that come over you and I mean, talk about hard. That's just really difficult. It can also be difficult. For example, my family served for decades in church in various ways. One of the last major ways we served was in music ministry. And so Dominic played the drums 
And it was a really long time before I could go to a worship service where there was contemporary worship and someone was playing the drums because it's just, it was just so hard. It can be difficult. The physical space can be difficult because you always sat in the same pew. You know, I mean, there's just dozens of ways it can be hard. If you had a a church that your family grew up in, you know, it can be even old rooms passing by the nursery, you know, and your kids were grown, but it's just, there's a lot of ways it can be hard. And sometimes it may mean that for a while you step back until the rawness of grief has passed. Sometimes it can be, like I said, you find another way to fellowship for a period of time. And sometimes you, you just have to change churches. And, you know, in America, at least we have a lot of choices and some families find that it's really best for them to just change churches for that reason. Another reason is, and this kind of goes back to relationships too. Um, I was wounded by leadership or congregants. People didn't come that I thought would come. Uh, People didn't offer specific support to my family. Sometimes people are, especially in really large churches, this can happen easily. Um, If they have kind of a ministry to the bereaved and you'll get kind of a perfunctory, somebody will contact you for a little bit and then you sort of drop off the radar. And we all know that we need support way past you know, the funeral or the memorial service Mm -hmm. or anything like that. It can be upsetting if you have been involved in ministry. And I know, you know, how many casseroles did I bake? Now we were, we were well supported. Um, This is not, was not my experience, but I know it has been the experience of some people, you know, you, you're the person that's always brought the casserole. You're the person that always did, the things for other people. You were very involved, actively involved in outreach ministry and nobody does it for you. And that that's very painful. And so that's hard. You know, it would be lovely if we had the capacity and the energy and the ability to overlook all these things. But like Jill said, you know, in the early days, depending again on your personality, it can be very easy to fall asleep rehearsing all these little things in your head. So it's hard to go back and put yourself in a position. And we all know how you have to go into church. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> you know, and so it's hard to put yourself back in that sp- space. For other people, it's because they don't feel like they fit in anymore. And again, this goes to um, the why questions. I mean, you've had time to work them out, but it does take time to work them out. And thank goodness, a lot of people never have to really face those why questions. A lot of people, especially in the United States and Western Christianity, this is not true around the world, but they are in a position where they probably don't suffer deep loss, whether it's child loss or some other kind of extremely deep suffering. And if they haven't, they don't understand our questions. They they are not David. They have not said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it, it gets a little uncomfortable when you're sitting in a Sunday school class or you're hearing a sermon or you're talking to someone 
and they're spouting, you know, well, God has a plan, you know, everything's going to turn out all right. And you're thinking everything didn't turn out all right. And this particular thing is not going to turn out all right. And I don't know if I can stand here and talk about this anymore. And so, again, the nature of church is that you're in, you know, communication with a lot of people. Um, one of the things that I personally found difficult was that since the physical proximity of people, and I'm I'm from Alabama, so everybody hugs everybody, but this idea that that you're all that people would come in and crowd in on me, and I knew they were being nice and they loved me and they did want to hug me, but I just didn't want to be that close to anybody who wasn't as broken as I was. I didn't want that physical proximity to people who didn't who didn't hear the hymns the same way I was hearing the hymns or hear the worship songs the same way I was hearing worship songs and songs like, you know, I bring a sacrifice of praise and I'm thinking and this is ugly and I admit it, you know, the Lord has worked on me since and I I don't think this anymore, but I would have a moment and I'm thinking Sure. What sacrifice are you bringing? How is how are you? How is this sacrificial for you to be here singing this song? And so it's hard. It's just it's it's a choice that we make to put ourselves in that vulnerable position. And sometimes we can't do it, you know, and and sometimes we have to work. Well, we always will have to work through that on some level. And we're going to have to decide one of the biggest areas of grief work, I believe, in faith is. I had to drag everything I thought I understood about how God worked in the world out in the light of child loss. And when I did that, I found that some of the things I thought I knew, some of the things I thought were true about how he did things for his children were either not true or not exactly the way I had always interpreted them. And when I, did that, I found out that I was, it was not always easy to listen to the tried and true time-honored verses that people would sometimes drag out and make the taglines of Sunday school lessons or something like that. So it was, it was hard. It took a lot, let me just put it this way. It took a lot more effort to go to church afterwards than it did beforehand. And it took me a long time. And every Sunday for a while, it was not something I was definitely going to do. I had to decide, can do I have the energy this Sunday to go? Do I have the energy this day to go to this particular event? Another thing that happens sometimes is sometimes bereaved parents feel shushed because if you're the one in the back of the room and, you know, a lot of times I would go and I could listen for, for, you know, maybe Sunday after Sunday and I'd be in a Sunday school class and then something wouldn't come up about suffering, you know, and how, how the Lord always relieves people's suffering, how people, it is, this is not biblical at all, but you know, God never gives you more than you can handle. That's a common thing that's, that's said. It's not biblical. It's, it's not, not biblical. <laughs> it's totally not true. <laughs> And I would just have to say something and you can be in these classes and all of a sudden everybody just shuts up. 
and they're hoping you're going to shut up because <laughs> because they don't want to have to think about this. Because one of the things that we do in our with our presence in church sometimes, or especially if it's in a small group, is we're forcing other people to consider how well or not they might face a similar crisis. And it's it's um, it, uh, there's the verse in first or second Corinthians uh, about us being the fragrance of Christ. And I feel sometimes not so much that I'm the fragrance of Christ, but I'm the fragrance of challenge to their faith, you know, because they, they it's, and it makes them uncomfortable. And so people stop talking to you or they hope that you won't talk. Another thing that happens is sometimes Brief parents don't always have the energy to act happy or blessed. And again, back to, you know, you walk in the church and what do you, you know, how are you today? I'm fine. How many people have fusses in their cars going to church? You don't have to raise your hand. And, uh, and but you come in the door and people are like, how are y'all? Oh, we're fine. We're just fine. We're just great. And you just, you just don't have the energy that goes back to the relationships and the grieving and giving yourself time. You just don't have the energy to do it. And so sometimes church is just a lot of energy. And that would be true for almost any other gathering, to be honest, except for like Brad and Jill and uh, Gary and Laura were talking about a, another group of bereaved parents um, where they uh, where they get us. But a lot of us have to go back to work. And if you have to go back to work for five days or however many days you work, and then you also are thinking about doing it again, something again like that on Sunday. It's just overwhelming. The other thing is there's not a lot of space in churches, I think, for doubt. Very few ministry leaders are prepared to deal with someone coming to them with genuine questions of doubt. And it's not their fault. A lot of them have not suffered deeply. A lot of them have never had their own faith challenged, and most of them are not trained in that. And so, again, it's not their fault. But what ends up happening, I believe, is frequently church for bereaved parents, instead of it being a place where your faith is strengthened for some of us, if we have questions, what we start thinking is that, well, if I have questions because there's no space to discuss them and no one to discuss them with, I must not believe anymore. I don't belong here anymore. This can't be the place for me anymore. But doubt is not disbelief. Doubt is just a way of finding the edges of what you actually do believe. So there's a few things that I think parents can do. One, like I said before, you can change churches and there's nothing wrong with doing that if you cannot if you're not comfortable where you are you can change churches but before you change churches assuming that it's not because of a physical reality but maybe it's a leadership issue or a question you have try going to your pastor or to another uh, ministry leader that you trust and say hey this is what I'm experiencing these are my concerns I really need space to talk to someone about those. And I want to come back. I want to worship and I want to be here. Another thing is, which I, I skipped over it, is sometimes we don't go back to church because we've been involved in ministry and people want us to fill that same slot again. Mm -hmm. 
and you just can't. I know my my tolerance for small children is gone. I will never be I will never be doing that again, you know. And I used to love doing that. I used to love to do vacation Bible school and all that. I have it's gone. I have no I can't do it. I can't do it. Sometimes it could be music. And again, maybe you can't do that anymore. And people it, again, it's not it's not anybody being unkind or mean. It's just they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. And so if you are a ministry leader, you're looking to fill that slot or you're looking to keep that ministry going. And they're just used to you being there. And they want, again, like Jill said, they want the old you. They want the old you because you were dependable. You filled that slot. You showed up every week and they don't know what to do about it. And so people will start pressuring you to come back. And so sometimes people feel like they have to change churches because they feel so much pressure to to fit back into that same place. So talk to your pastor. You can change churches. And the other thing is, you know what? I firmly believe, and there are people that might disagree with me, but I firmly believe that if you need to take a break, if you can find another place where you can be fed the word of God, where you can meet with other believers, where you can be encouraged and held accountable, that is perfectly okay. The way we do church did not come down with Moses from the mountain. And there are other ways to do it. You know, I do think, though, that it is critical to stay connected to other believers. And if that's only one or two other believers that you can trust, that's fine. And I'll just close with this, which was a huge help to me. And it kind of ties a lot of these things together, like about the people you don't necessarily expect coming, being the people. I had two moms. We homeschooled all of our children. And these were two moms that I knew very well about 10 years before Dominic died. And they took it upon themselves to come and visit with me once a month. They would, they, I lived about an hour and a half from them and they would bring lunch and they'd come and stay with me all day. The first few times they came, I don't even remember what we talked about. I know I talked about Dominic and I know I cried. And then there were times that we didn't say anything. They both were Jesus followers. And they gave me the space to say what I needed to say. They fed my heart truth. They spoke scripture over me, but they never corrected me. They didn't demand that I get past the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me real fast to, but you're holy. They gave me you know, I'm thinking there was time between those two verses that David wrote. You know? <laughs> you know? so, so, you know, they gave me that time and space. And that for a while with a few other close believing friends was my church after Dominic left because I needed that space and I needed that kind of intimacy, but genuine intimacy. Great. Well, thank you. Another truth is, at first you may not believe this, but a truth is we can get through the loss of a child. We will never get over it. And that's a, that's another truth. When um, Eric, our first one, uh, was killed, um, 
One of the first books that I've ever received from a friend was Doug Manning's book, Don't Take My Grief Away. And I liked it because it was really thin. And uh, <laughs> it lay there on the bedside for a few days, but I picked it up, Don't Take My Grief Away, because, you know, that was something I needed to to go through, to really, to. my idea was to kind of get through it, but it is ordained to us that there is a time to mourn. Um, and Ecclesiastes goes through all the seasons, and mourning is one of the seasons. And uh, it's really something that um, we can't rush through, uh, something we don't want to rush through because of the healing process takes time because we've been deeply wounded with this, and it takes a long time for an open wound to heal. And we have been openly wounded. I mean, when your heart is jerked out, when <laughs> went back to get my uh, physical that was recommended after going through such trauma to just get a physical checkup, you know, and I said, well, there's only one part of me missing, and that's my heart. Mm. See if it's still in there. And so he assured me that I was. And But it was something I needed to, to continue to, to, to work with for a while. And even in the New Testament then, you know, it says, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, if we don't mourn, how is there going to be in comfort? So mourning is a very big part of this. And I hope it didn't discourage you when... Um, Laura said something about uh, H. Norman Wright said it takes up to 10 years just to stabilize after the death of a child. So if you're, you know, in the first five, six, seven years and you think, man, I should be getting a whole lot better by now and you don't feel like you are, just stay the course, stay the course, keep keep doing what you're doing. You are doing the right things by reaching out, coming to places like this listening to online things and so you are making progress whether you believe it or not or, or feel like it or not at the moment so take the time to grieve take the time to mourn and that lament is such a big part to really cry out to the lord that's a that's a, a lament is a screaming out at the lord uh, to the lord not at the lord so there was some of that too um, i have to admit but there's just no there's just no shortcuts. You know, you're just going to have to plow through it. Dr. Uh, Susan Smeegy, as you know, keeps saying, and, and a lot of my background is is grief share because our church began a grief share in 2003, and I I was there at that time. Uh, Eric was killed in 1996, and there was nothing that I had except just some books and people. The the fact that you know she says there's no no way around it just just plow through it and one of the first things to do it is is face it and I think anytime we try to overcome something adverse acceptance of the fact is really important and that was something that I didn't want to do is accept the fact because of that big old tangled ball of emotions right there in the very center is denial and I don't know how long I yelled tell me it isn't so, tell me it isn't so. But finally, with accepting the fact that it is so, then it's going to the hard places. And a lot of the hard places are going to those places that um, that bring back memories that may be hurtful, but in the event, they are also happy memories. So you have to start sorting those out. Go to the hard places, feel the pain, don't deny your, ourselves of the pain that it's going to be. So 
cry until your pillow's wet, you know, or um, so many of you are still having to work and go to work, and I was too, uh, standing in front of 159th graders. It was a challenge within itself, but at any rate, you know, you can't mourn all the time because you have to compartmentalize. So if you have to find a time to say, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to mourn for a while, you know, and specifically give yourself assignment to, to say, this is my grief time and uh, go after it with all the gusto you can and get it and get it out, talk about it, work it out. The second point on your notebook there is um, moving forward is a decision. Those aren't my words. That comes from H. Norman Wright. And if I may, I'm just going to read you a little bit of what he says. And it really made sense to me. A decision to move forward, although living in denial may be necessary for a time, at some point there must be a decision to move beyond the denial. This does not mean that grieving will stop. That's when the healing process has just begun. We have to come to the place where we recognize that we admit that person is gone and no longer part of my earthly life. When we hang on to that person as if he were still here, we become stuck in grief and can't move forward with our life. So how do we do that? You know, we were attached to this person for ever how long we had them with us. So being the practical person I am, I really like the grief share, grief share outline. So you can get out your pens and write these down. Number one, <laughs> no, I'm, that's my teacher in me. Um, but some of the some of the things that you do moving forward is write out the memories. You know, go there, address any unresolved issues that you might have. You might be mad at that person. I was mad at Eric for going off on a trip without telling me where it's going. Acknowledge the hidden grief that you have. Look for the exceptions in your sorrow. What what is that? This type is a little brain work. Make a conscious decision every day to let God guide your every step. And that uh, that really takes a lot of pressure off of you. If you just say, you know, God help me get through this day. And I turn it over to you. Moving forward doesn't mean that you forget. It doesn't mean that you're getting over it. It doesn't mean that you forget the person. It doesn't mean that you feel don't feel the loss of the pain of the loss. That's not what moving forward means. It doesn't even mean that you believe that life is fair. You know, it's not fair that we lost all three of our children. Nothing fair about that. Talk to God when you get there. Um, <laughs> moving forward does mean that you experience a lessening of the pain. That cloud, that dark, dark cloud that hangs over us, you know, in those first years, you know, it begins to lift mm -hmm. and the, the pain does lessen. You can treasure your best memories. It's fun to talk about them and laugh and and uh, talk about all the things they liked and, you know, do their favorite dessert, you know, on certain occasions or whatever, you know, and, and, and talk about them to the ones you have uh, around you. You can rationally, realistically accept the different aspects of the loss you know, when we lose someone, we lose their essence. They were more than just one person. I mean, one thing. Mm -hmm. They were, you know, my source of humor. I don't know 
who's going to tell me jokes now that Mark's gone um, that I've actually laughed at. Um, and um, not gone. No. <laughs> you, you begin to grow in grace with your, your walk with the Lord as you move forward. You accept the loss and you even forgive others, you know, when they mess up and say really stupid things to you, you can forgive them for that. You understand that joy and pain are part of your life. It's going to be there forever. You're going to experience both, you know, until Jesus takes us home. And you believe that God moving forward helps you to believe that God is good even when life isn't. Well, bereaved parents want to talk about their children. And we want others to remember them. I think one of our biggest fears after losing a child is that they will be forgotten and that their memory will be a part of uh, forgotten history. And so that's one of the reasons that it's hard for us to move forward as well. We, we attempt to keep that memory alive. It's important for us to talk. That's part of the therapeutic process. We, we have to talk about our children. The difficulty there is not us talking, but finding someone who will listen. And I was told early on that I would probably um, get a whole new set of friends. And that didn't necessarily mean I was going to lose all the ones I had, but I was going to meet new friends who had lost children themselves who would understand what I was going through and have an ability to listen as I talked about my child. It's difficult for those who have not experienced child loss to sustain what we have to. We have to endure grief the rest of our lives and the difficulty that goes with it. Uh, you probably recognize that shortly after your uh, child died that your your friends were there for a while. And then it wasn't many months before they disappeared or they seemed to be uncomfortable if you brought up your child. And we have to give them a lot of grace because uh, they don't they can't sustain much longer than a few months, perhaps uh, what we're going through, uh, nor can they always understand the changes in our identity, which totally changes in who we are. So if you need to find someone who can listen, uh, make that a priority because it is so important for you. It may be that you have to educate some people. Uh, it's not always that that our, our friends and even family members um, don't want to listen. They don't know that they need to, or they don't know how to. We can become comfortable pretty quickly with talking about our children. I mean, I think from day one, Laura and I would talk about Nathan like he was still right here in our presence. And that became very easy for us. But we noticed that uh, at the first few family gatherings and around friends we'd always been with, uh, that they were more uncomfortable than we were if Nathan came up in conversation. So we recognized early on that we had to uh, educate them. Basically, we had that responsibility to let them know how to help us because they wanted to. They just didn't know how. And we had to help them get past their level of discomfort um, in conversation. There are a lot of reasons why uh, they're uncomfortable. Um, and one is that it's kind of a, a humorous myth in a way to all of us here, but I would have conversations in the first year or so after Nathan died and 
was hurt that somebody didn't bring him up or have, ask how I was doing. And um, what was humorous about it was when I would bring Nathan up after a while, they would ultimately say, well, I was wondering how you were doing, but I didn't want to say it because I didn't want to remind you of it. Uh, I thought maybe <laughs> you had gotten so, yeah. over it by now. You've all heard that, right? And so that's one of the reasons why they don't bring it up. Within a month or so after Nathan died, <clears throat> I was having lunch with a friend. And when we sat down at the restaurant, the first thing he said was, how are you grieving? And I thought, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. And that opened the door for me to say anything I wanted. And he was all ears and willing to listen. And so uh, for those who want to help a grieving parent, but don't know how, one of the most important things you can do to support them is to just listen to them talk and even open the conversation yourself by maybe talking about a memory that you have of that person's child and uh, telling a story um, about that person and kind of getting the parent to, to start talking. So uh, people don't mean to hurt, uh, they wanna help, but we're the ones that have to help them be able to do that. And, uh, and as far as this topic goes, we have to um, allow others to uh, let us talk because we have to do that. As long as we live, we're going to want to talk about our child because we don't want to feel that we're going to forget them. Not that we would, but we really don't want others to as well. Sibling grief is often overlooked. We could probably talk about this from a couple of different aspects. But what I wanted to do tonight uh, in within the time that we have right now is to perhaps help us as bereaved parents think about ways that we might not be aware our surviving children are grieving and how they may be dealing with it. And also to help us think about uh, support that they may need, which is unique to them as siblings. Frequently and understandably, the focus is on parents. You know, people, even with all this, their shortcomings, they usually very quickly realize that this is a devastating loss for any parent. They don't always recognize, especially under different circumstances, for example, if siblings are very small, young, or if they're out of the house and have moved away, they often don't realize that it's a devastating loss for siblings, too. Siblings need support, and yet the people that they would normally come to with their own broken hearts over other things are their parents. And at that moment, parents are uniquely unable most times to meet that need um, because they're grieving too. Siblings may have trouble expressing their grief and others are assume they're okay. This is very, very common in young children and in uh, like school age, even through teens, sometimes into college, kids tend to do kid things. And they will often continue to do the normal things that they do. And from the outside, you may not notice that there's a lot of grieving going on. And especially people outside the family as parents or even uh, close friends, they might notice subtle differences, 
But people outside the family, a lot of times don't realize that something's going on with the kids because they're like, oh, they're still coming to football practice. Oh, they're still in the play. Oh, they're going out. You know, they go upstairs, they play video games or whatever. And or they're little, real young, you know, and they're still jumping on the trampoline or whatever. And people don't realize that a lot of the reason that they're seeing this kind of behavior is not because the child is not grieving or doesn't understand that loss has occurred. It's because they don't have the capacity or the language or feel like we do sometimes that they have the space and grace to express that grief. Children and young people are not infinitely resilient. That's something I definitely wanted to say because, you know, that's an ex I shouldn't say excuse because it's not really an excuse. That's a reason or a, or a line of reasoning that a lot of adults use to justify making big changes in children's lives. Now, obviously, we didn't make this change, but I'm thinking of other things. Oh, kids, they're young. They're resilient. They'll get over it. Child loss, sibling loss changes everybody for the rest of their lives. Whether you see it, you don't see it, whether even they know it or don't know it, it changes everything. Sibling grief is different in kind, but not degree. That's another thing. People want to rank loss. Child loss is the absolute worst. You know, maybe sibling loss is the next. Maybe spouse loss is the next. And I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's how the world, people tend to want to rank things. But it's not. It's just as devastating for them. They have lost an important part of their lives, an important person. And we were talking earlier, when you lose a person, there's one physical human that has left this world. But that human represents a lot of different people to a lot of different people. I lost my son. I'm his mother. I have a unique relationship, had a re unique relationship to him. My husband lost his son, but he was the dad. He had a unique relationship. Both of us lost an additional unique thing, which was the part of us that was reflected back to us from Dominic. So like you were saying, your son was your joke teller. It, you, you lose that too. So the, so the siblings have lost the person, but they've also lost part of themselves that was reflected back to them from that sibling, brother or sister. And that's that's big. And that takes a long time to comprehend, understand and work. So all, we're all the things we're saying about grief work equally apply to siblings. They also have to go through all of this work. They also have to accept the loss. They also have to begin to understand what parts of them have changed, what the new person is that's left behind. Siblings lose the parents they knew. You know, I am not, I have two grandchildren. I am not the grandmother that I would have been if Dominic was still here. I have a different relationship with my grandchildren because I lost a son. And my own children my surviving children have a different mom than they would have had. Siblings lose the family they knew. If you have, we have four children. So Dominic was the middle kid in every way. There was my daughter's the oldest, James Michael's the second, Dominic, then Julian. 
So Julian, he stayed the youngest, but James Michael's, the positions of the children in the family changed. I guess that didn't work for mine because I had four. I still have a middle child. And so, <laughs> anyway, but for people that have three children or two children, that one becomes an only. Or if you have three and they're, you know, they move up, their, their positions change. Siblings on average, not always, because none of us know when we're, when we're going to get to go to heaven, will live longer with this loss than the parents will. Siblings may also feel a responsibility to try to fix the family. It's not unusual for a child to develop some kind of story about how, how their actions or attitudes or secret longings caused or impacted the death of a sibling. Um, sometimes little children get ideas in their heads and parents need to be really careful about how they talk about what happened and make sure that children, especially really younger ones, understand. Children may shoulder, may shoulder an outsized and unfair burden that they have to make up somehow for the sorrow in their family. Somehow they've got to be extra good, extra smart, extra whatever, fill in the blank. And that if they can only be extra, then that will make mom and dad happy again. Um, especially in the early, early days. Parents need to be honest about death, loss, and faith. Don't pretend, admit the hard, allow children to see you grieve. Now, this is my personal opinion, especially for young children. I don't think it's particularly healthy for very young children who have limited comprehension to see a parent. I'm not talking about when you first get the news, but in an ongoing fashion for them to see you completely lose it repeatedly because I think that for very young children that's a, a horrifying experience that they don't have the ability to comprehend. But they do they do need to see you grieve. They need to see the tears if that's how you grieve. Some people don't cry a lot. They need to know that you're sad. They need to know that, you know, right now mom can't talk because she's thinking about Dominic and she needs to, she just needs to be alone for five minutes or something. It is perfectly, it's not only okay, it's really important for your surviving children to develop healthy emotional lives and appropriate grief response for them to see you grieve. That's really important. Don't employ euphemisms or half-truths with your kids about death. When I was three, my great-grandfather died. And as is done in the South, they laid him out in the living room of the home place. And we were going through and my dad, I remember my dad was holding me and I said, well, what happened to what happened to Papa? And he said, well, he's asleep. That was the worst thing that he could have ever told me, you know, and we do it. It's like talking about other uncomfortable subjects. We're uncomfortable and we do it because we don't know what to say. But you need to let children need to be told that death is final in the in the physical sense and that heaven exists and that Dominic's with Jesus. I had that sort of tell my grandchildren. And if they ask more, tell them more. If they don't ask more, I'm talking about little ones. If they don't ask more, then don't tell them more. It's like the birds and the bees talk. Only tell them what they're actually asking you for, you know, but tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. Children have, have questions about their faith. 
the worst thing we can do, and I and this goes all the way up through teens. A lot of times, teen children will really, really struggle with their faith. Uh, well, a, a lot of all, almost all surviving siblings at, on some level do, just like almost all bereaved parents do. They need to have the space and the grace to express that. And if you shut them down, if you tell them, well, you know better than that. We've always gone to church. You know, you know who Jesus is. You know about heaven. You know it's going to be okay in the end. You have to remember, go back to the first points. Their loss is just as great as yours. That's not comforting to you, even if you do believe it's not going to be comforting to them. And all you're going to do is shut them out and shut them down. And we as bereaved parents, because we also know how hard it is, we have the opportunity to give them space that we may not experience ourselves, except with a very few people. Siblings should be able to choose how much of their story is told. And this is something I think is really important as a parent. A lot of times, uh, again, some of this advice is different for school-age children versus adult children. But for school-age children, I think a lot of times you're going to need to tell the school about something and maybe a few of the details of a loss so that um, appropriate accommodations can be made. And if there's a counselor available, they can just be aware of things. If your children are adults, past the basic kinds of information that's typically included in an obituary, assuming that they agree to that, you should not be going around telling people their story, just like other people shouldn't be going around telling your story. They're, they're separate adult human beings, and they should have the opportunity. I know one of my children has expressed that, not because I told anybody, but when they're in a, a setting of people that they don't always lead with, and I lost a brother, that they don't, they don't want that to be their primary identity. And it's not our business to make it our kids' primary identity. And I do write the blog and anything I've put in the blog, I've had the children's permission to put there. But I don't, I don't tend to tell anything about them to other people. Siblings also experience enormous pressure to get over their loss. And in some ways they experience more because they are having to make life decisions at some point, whether even if they're small children, they'll grow up. But if you have children who've lost a sibling when they're teens and they're getting up into their young adult years, they're starting fam they're making choices about school, they're starting families, they're trying to decide on their careers. And that stuff really can't wait. You know, there's 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 a unique path to for, you know, or, or there is a path for kids to kind of go up through that. And so they can't just say, well, for a year or two, I'm just going to hang back and just and wait. They need to go ahead and make those choices or at least be going toward those choices. And so there's a lot of pressure for them to get over it. Um, I know when my kids, when Dominic died, it was right near finals for the last semester of, of college. One of my children had glorious, beautiful professors because this, because the university itself, same university, two different kids, the university itself didn't have a, a, a decent policy. I think it was a three days bereavement like so many places. And one of my kids, the professors were like, take all the time you need. 
you know, I, you can take the final whenever you can come get it. Not a problem. I don't mind. No big deal. Another one of mine said, nope, you got to take it. If you don't take it, you get an incomplete or, or you know, you get docs the points for that final. So a lot of places really treat sibling death almost like it's, I don't know. It, I don't know how really to explain it, but they definitely don't give it the weight that it deserves. And, and so you may have to advocate and not in the university setting because they're adults, but in the, in the school setting, you may have to advocate for your kids. Unmarried siblings tend to experience their grief alone. And that's a huge deal. If you have siblings that are married, bereaved siblings, or you also have bereaved siblings who are still in the home, they'll have family unit around them. But um, unmarried siblings, that's a that's a uniquely challenging thing. And you need to be aware of that. Siblings may um, experience the loss repeatedly through the years. So one of the things that happens if you've got really young children is they don't have the language or the emotional maturity or the mental maturity to comprehend and to express. And so as they age up, a lot of times they will sort of almost re-experience it when they begin to have better comprehension and, and or they may just have better expression and begin to express it. And depending on where parents are and where other people are in the family and their grief, sometimes there can be some friction there, you know, and when kids start to express that. Um, birthdays, holidays, and other special days are poignant reminders for them too. And I know a lot of kids have a hard time celebrating their birthdays because they know their sibling can't celebrate his or her birthday. And so just be aware that those things, it's just hard. It's I guess my main thing is it's really hard for siblings. And a lot of times people don't realize that it's as hard for them as it is for us. It's just different. And then the last thing is that parents should be aware that bereaved siblings can be at a greater risk for unhealthy or dangerous behaviors. So just know that bereaved siblings can sometimes gravitate toward alcohol or drug abuse or any other kind of danger. It can just be driving fast. You know, it can be there's all kinds of behaviors that they can gravitate to because in part, it's kind of like, well, who knows when what's going to happen, especially depending on the, the circumstances of their sibling's death. So just be aware of that and be watching and don't be sure that that they should know better because their sibling went to heaven a certain way that they shouldn't also engage in this behavior or engage in other risky behaviors. And um, there's just a lot fewer resources for siblings. I know while we're waiting has a sibling online sibling group um, that you can find through their page. But in general, there's just not that much out there for siblings and it's really tough. All right, I'd like to just uh, add one thing to, to Melanie that we learned from uh, a mom and a daughter that came to retreat together. They both had lost their child. The mom had lost mm. uh, their daughter's sister and then the, the daughter had lost her son. So they came together and, and when she said something that, that we since went back and did later, but she turned to her daughter and before she started talking about her, da her daughter that had went to heaven, she turned and said, I just want you to know that if it had been you, 
I would have felt the same way. Mm-hmm. And that was big for me to, mm-hmm. and we and, and we we made a point to tell our daughter that, mm-hmm. so that they needed to hear that that it would have been just just. And, and I think that was mm-hmm. important. To, mm-hmm. that was it important. is. So I, I just thought I was because that was a advice we got about a year ago. We're yes. fourteen years in. And we went back and, and, and said that to our daughter. But uh, and I'm glad you said that, Brad, because I I missed uh, one of the points that I wanted to make, which was sibling rivalry never dies, and and it, it doesn't if you're if you if you never lost a child and all your children live to be you know their golden oldies, it never dies, and don't make a saint out of the child that has gone on because this is the thing their record stops on that day and as we get further and further from that day the record gets rosier and rosier as it does with most of us you know when we're remembering people we love the other children continue to live and grow and make mistakes and do all the things that pe- that humans do and so there's going to be rough patches and if you allow yourself to beatify the child that has already left for heaven, it really can become a source of rivalry. And I love what that mom did because that was re- that's really important. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, losing a child changes us in ways that uh, might not have happened otherwise. And and a couple of things I just want to share with that and and. I want to say up front, I become a Christian at an early age. I was a young boy. But when Hannah went to heaven, my perspective changed. My eternal perspective changed. And, and I started looking looking to heaven from that point on and in a way that I've never looked at heaven. It, it, it was different immediately. And I, I remember the, the, the moment she went to heaven, I started looking up. Because that's where my daughter was. And so... I don't think I would have had I would have the eternal perspective I have today if my daughter didn't go to heaven at 17. It has helped me to look at things completely different. I, I have a desire to share Jesus with others. That's our hope. That's why my daughter's in heaven, because she knew Jesus as her personal savior. That's why I'm going to be in heaven, because I I've made this a decision for Christ and accept him as my savior. So I don't think I would have that perspective. And I I have my whole outlook, even in, in, in working, I was an educator and was a, a daughter's principal, but that changed. I became more compassionate mm-hmm. for others. And I see, and not just in child loss, but in, in life, you see where people are coming from and you go, wow, you know there. And I know what the hurt I was, have been experiencing and to see that in other people's lives, not just child loss, but I became more compassionate. And I, I don't know that I would have. I, I was more as a, as administrator, I was I was going to get my doctorate and be a big school superintendent. And I tell people, and I mean this, I could be a small school janitor. It doesn't matter. It does not matter. My, my perspective changed. And and, and uh, I'm grateful for that and, and the way I, I look at I look mm-hmm. at things and, and look at uh, look at how how I live life, and, and again that perspective, that eternal perspective, and longing for heaven. 
from from the moment she went to heaven, I'm, I'm longing to be there. I want to be with with her. I want to I want to see Jesus, but I'm going to be looking for Hannah real quick. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I look forward to that. And I look forward to eternity, y'all. When you really, you know, this time of separation here on earth, when we get to heaven and we and we spend eternity with our kids, that's forever more. Mm-hmm. And we can't even imagine how long forever eternity is. And I like our my friend Joy, the best is yet to come. That best is eternity in heaven. And we're going to be with our Savior and with our children. But I didn't have that perspective beforehand and went to heaven. Anything else to add to that? But the only other thing I was going to say is just, and it has to do with that eternal perspective. Some of y'all have probably discovered after Hannah went to heaven, my tolerance for like small talk and chit chat and <laughs> gossip and, you know, what everybody, what Hollywood's doing. Who cared about any of that stuff? You know, I just, I didn't want to talk about those things. We had a dad come to a retreat one time and he said, you know, everybody, it feels like everybody around me is talking kindergarten and I want to talk uh, calculus. I want to, you know, we want to talk about things that are of eternal significance that have real value. And, you know, I like to follow the Arkansas Ragebacks as much as everybody does, but you know, that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They're going to get beat. <laughs> but you know what? It's, it's, it's those things of eternal significance that have great value to me now, much more than ever before. And so that's one way that I feel like I've been profoundly changed. Well, the 10th and last truth is, um, that even when we don't feel like God is near, he is. So as we close tonight, I just want to open it up. If anyone has something on your heart that you'd like to share about this topic, uh, feel free to. I know we've gone way over time, so we'll just do a few more minutes here. Um, but I just want to say the key word to me, a couple key words of that sentence. One of them is feel. And there's a difference between the way we feel and what's the truth. Mm -hmm. And especially when I was mourning so deeply, I felt like God wasn't here anymore. But the truth is he's right there. He's still there. I remember that people would always say, well, hang on to Jesus. You know, hang on to Jesus. I'm thinking, I can't hang on to any, I can't hang on to anything. You know, I had this like image of me over a cliff hanging on and I realized I can let go and rest because he's got me. So if you feel like you, you know, can't hang on, that's okay. He really is right there. So just because you don't feel him there, he hasn't gone anywhere. He's right there, but it's a feeling and it's morning and you can rest in him and know that he's, he's got you. I guess I would just share um, the closeness of God that I felt. Uh, the year Hannah was in treatment before she went to heaven. And in the early morning talks outside, a lot of times I had to take our, our dog outside and it's dark. And you're, I'm just crying out to God and saying, you know, answer it, ask his little questions. How are we going to do this, Lord? And uh, But just the sense that he was just right here, face to face. He hadn't left. He's still there. And, and I think that's where... Uh, 
you know, we need to be reminded of that. God, God is there. He wants to be in our in our face, so to speak. He wants to be sitting across the table for us, and just where we get his talk to him, like we we've been visiting tonight, and just cry out to him because he's there. Um, and I will have to say that I long for those close face-to-face talks that I had that that year or more that we were going through. The, the journey with, with Hannah's illness and I missed that. And, but God hadn't, he hadn't left. He's there. And, and we just need to be reminded of that. And he wants us to be, be face to face. Well, that's the end of uh, these 10 topics. I'm sure we could come up with 10 more, couldn't we? <laughs> we all struggle with, but uh, Brad, would you like to close in prayer? Father, we just thank you, Lord, for uh, bringing us together for this time, Father. And I thank you for the things that we've discussed and the things we're processing, Father. And I just pray for each of us that we would just uh, just lean into you and uh, allow you to guide us and direct us, Lord. And I just thank you for the opportunity to share our stories and uh, look forward to hearing the stories of others. And, and Father, that you've given us a story. And we do have hope. And you are near to us. And we can trust you, Father. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the While We're Waiting, Hope After Child Loss podcast. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please take just a moment to leave a rating or a review. And please feel free to share it with someone you know who might be helped by it. We're so grateful for all of you who come back and listen every week, and those of you who may be listening for the very first time. I hope God has used it to encourage you today and to help you live well while you're waiting.